His, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand.
Thank you for that anthem and the great hymn, The Old Rugged Cross, thanks to our sanctuary choir. As we go to prayer uh, as a church family, let me just mention one thing I was made aware of uh, just this morning, and that is uh, Dr. Gil Beers, a longtime member here, has been moved uh, into hospice care this week. So just keep uh, Gil and uh, the entire Beers family uh, in your prayers this week. Will you bow with me in prayer? Lord God, how grateful we are this morning that we can gathered together as a family, as your great family, uh, to worship together, to hear your word together, and to pray together, and that we can come to you trusting that you listen to us, that you know us, each heart in here today, you know what we carried into the room, you know whatever pains or sorrows or concerns that we have, and you love us and know us and hear our prayers. We thank you. Lord, we want to thank you today for the recent uh, successful surgeries that Lynn Entz and Dave Ann Norman uh, endured. We pray for recovery and strength for both of them. Uh, we want to pray for those who have ongoing health concerns, Tony Van Helka, uh, Bob and Claudia Coster, uh, others who uh, can't be with us today because they're struggling with some issue. And we pray for uh, Dr. Gil Beers as well during these days in his life when uh, he's looking forward to being at home with you. And Lord, we ask for your mercy and your grace and your peace uh, in his life and in his family during these days. We ask you to care for those who um, are struggling with health issues to minister your healing and your, your comfort to them. Lord, we also want to lift up our entire church family uh, during this season. We pray uh, for Pastor Jeff and his family. We trust the work you are doing in his life, a work of rest and insight and healing. Uh, we pray for uh, encouragement and protection for his, uh, his family. And we pray for our church family, for our leadership. We thank you for them. We thank you for our staff and our younger staff in particular. We pray that you will uh, protect and guide and help us to trust you throughout this entire journey. Lord, you are the God who sees us. We'll see that later this morning in your word. You're the God who, who pursues us in a personal way. You're the God who saves, who walks with, and who promises to redeem all that we experience now, sorrow and pains and suffering, you promise to redeem into your glory in your timing and in your way. So may we, as the great hymn writer encourages us, may we cling to your cross until that day when we exchange it for a crown. Encourage us with these words. Encourage us with these truths. Thank you so much for hearing our prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, most of you know by now that my uh, dad was a pastor for uh, 60 years or more, and so he had lots of church stories and lots of church people stories. And one of his favorite stories over the years had to do with the one time uh, in his career that he preached a sermon to just one person. It was a small church, as I recall. I was just just a boy, uh, maybe 100 people in the whole church family. But there was one lady who had a a habit of, you know, just being in other people's business a lot. She was uh, bluntly a gossip. And it was starting to hurt relationships. And it was, in my dad's eyes, impacting and damaging to the fellowship of this small church body. So he decided to preach a sermon about the dangers of gossip in the church, specifically with this one lady in mind. I don't know exactly what passage he preached, something probably like Ephesians 4 that says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up, something like that. So he prepared, prepared, and prayed, and, and then he preached this sermon as clearly and as forcefully as he could, all but calling the lady out by name. I mean, he was just convinced everybody knew who he was talking about. And after the service, at that, those days, it was his custom to stand at the back of the sanctuary at the church door and greet everyone as they left the service. So he, st- he was greeting people back there, and, and he could see her coming in the line. And finally she got to him, and she took, both of his, t- took his hand in both of her hands. And she looked up at him in the eye, and he thought he could see a little tear in her eye. And he was thinking, thank you, Lord. Spirit has been working. And she looked at him and said, thank you so much, Pastor. There's a lot of people in this church really need to hear that, she said. (laughs) He says he never tried that strategy again. Now that lady uh, suffered from what we might just call a blind spot. But really, she was blind to herself and couldn't see her own behavior, her own sin. And that's the theme we're going to look at today. We're in the second week of a series we're calling Unrecognized King. We're looking at seven stories that take place in the final couple of months of Jesus' earthly ministry that will lead us all the way to Easter Sunday morning. And each story, we're seeing that Jesus makes a statement about himself, something about his identity, his authority, his purpose. And in each story, someone or a group of people fails to recognize him. We're also going to see that John, and most of our our studies are in the Gospel of John, uh, tells these stories with a kind of pattern. There's a, a miracle that takes place, a supernatural event, usually a healing, and John calls these signs because they are signs that point to who Jesus is. And then after the miracle or alongside it, there's a teaching. Jesus teaches something about himself, and then there's a response. A response either of belief or of unbelief and even increasing hostility. And we're going to get the sense as we go through the series that Jesus is is almost orchestrating a journey that he knows will lead to the cross, and we're going to be walking alongside him on that same journey. Now, last week we began the series in John chapter 6, and if you remember the miracle that took place, the sign was the miraculous feeding of 5,000 people, actually more than 5,000, 5,000 men, John says, with um, five loaves and two fishes. And then the teaching was when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. 
He says he came not just to satisfy our physical hunger, to feed the crowd's bread, but he came to satisfy our spiritual hunger. Now today, he uses physical blindness to teach about spiritual blindness. A little bit of background. In John chapter 8, Jesus makes another I am statement. We see it in John 8, verse 12. It says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, when he says that, a a, a big argument erupts, an angry argument between Jesus and the Pharisees who are in the crowd. Uh, And and then during this argument, if you go back and look at chapter 8, the Pharisees start calling him names. They call Jesus an illegitimate child, kind of pointing to the stories around his birth. Uh, They call him demon-possessed. And then Jesus gives it right back to them and says, you are children of your father, the devil. So this is not a comfortable conversation. And then in that context, Jesus says, John 8, 58, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, uh, slipping away from the temple grounds. So when Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am, he's not just saying that he existed before Abraham, who lived 1,700 years before Jesus was born in the flesh. He's also applying the great name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, I am that I am, to himself. Before Abraham was, I am. And when he says that, the Pharisees understood immediately what he was saying about himself, and to them this is blasphemy. Blasphemy. Punishable by stoning to death. They pick up stones, but somehow Jesus escapes. Now, with that backdrop, we come to the story we look at today. John chapter 9. This is a long narrative story. I'm going to break it into several parts, and we'll work our way all the way through it, beginning in verse 1, chapter 9. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. You've probably heard the story before, and it begins with physical blindness. And that's the first point today, physical blindness. Uh, Back when our boys were uh, much younger, Um, they were playing outside one summer evening, and this is the way I remember the story. Actually, the son that this is about is here today, so he might be able to enlighten me about the story. Uh, But they were playing outside one summer evening, uh, and as I recall, it was after dinner. uh, It was getting dark, and so we called them all in. And when they they came in, they all came in except for one. So three out of the four came in, uh, and the youngest one was not with them. He was only five or six years old at the time. We were like, where's your brother? And they were... They all shrugged their shoulders and said, we don't know. He was playing with us, and you called us in, so we came in. We don't know where he is. You know, that was kind of a, you know, are we my, our brother's keeper or what? It was kind of that moment. 
So I went out looking for him, and it was dark, and I was worried, like, where could he be? They all came in, he didn't come in. Where in the world could he have gone? And then I was around the side of her house, and I heard a sound, a noise. I investigate the noise, and I found our son, who had, who had been running through the dark and f- blind, and fell into a window well right next to our house that was uncovered. And it was a deep well, and he couldn't get out. He was just standing down in this window well in the dark, and I realized how dangerous that was. He was running at night, running blind, couldn't see where he was going, and fell into a hole. Couldn't get out. John says, as he went along, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. Now, a few things to notice right here in this first verse. First, physical blindness was mentioned, is mentioned quite often in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, because in the ancient world, blindness was caused by a whole number of factors that today in our world could be treated medically and probably uh, reversed or at least prevented. It could be an infection, could have been disease, could have been an injury. But in the ancient world, blindness was um, difficult to treat and often resulted in a person becoming a beggar. That's what happened in that, that time in those places. And so you would have to beg for your living sitting by the side of the road near the gate of a city or near the walls of the city. And that's what we see happening here. Secondly, uh, every Jewish person of the time knew that the coming of the promised Messiah was linked to the healing of the blind. Isaiah chapter 42 we read, I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. So the healing of the blind was a sign that Messiah had come. Thirdly, notice the man, uh, John says, the man was blind from birth. And that's significant because John is telling us that this man's blindness was not the result of some sort of accident or the result of some sort of disease he had contracted later in life. But blind from birth meant that this was a permanent condition. And in that culture that time, it would have meant it was incurable. Nothing you could do about this man's blindness. And finally, notice this. It says, Jesus saw the man. That simple word, saw. And I think we see in that word something about Jesus' compassion, something about how he saw and valued the dignity of even a person regarded as cursed by God, relegated to being a beggar on the side of the road. So Jesus saw a man that most people walked right on by. And then we see the disciples ask a theological question. Verse 2, then his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Now, to us, this might seem like a bit of a strange question to ask. I don't think we would ask it quite that way, at least not out loud. We would say something like, why do bad things like this happen? Why are people born blind? But in the ancient Jewish culture, there was an assumption that there was a connection between sin and suffering. So if you suffered an illness or disease, it must be because you had committed some grievous sin. We see this in the book of Job, for example, in the Old Testament, when Job, the man, suffers all kinds of calamity and pain and loss due to Satan's attack on him. And his friends come and gather, and they badger him eventually with questions about how he must have sinned. Because after all, God would not have sent these things upon him if he didn't deserve it. And then God eventually confronts the friends 
about their wrong assumptions about himself. So in this case, a man blind from birth, uh, the assumption would have been either that this man had committed some sort of sin while still in the womb, which evidently was a school of thought in those days, or his parents had sinned. Therefore, the question, did this man sin or did his parents? Generational sin was seen to be the cause of some birth defects and things like that. So even though this sounds strange to us, I think there could be something of that kind of thinking in our, in our modern world today. You hear people say things like, well, you know, there must be a reason for everything. Or so-and-so doesn't deserve what's happening to him. Or so-and-so does deserve what's happening to them. Uh, the belief that eventually everyone gets what they deserve out of life. And what I want to point out is that's, that's not Christian thinking. That's, that's karma. And karma comes out of the, 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 the Hindu religion, that everyone gets what they deserve, or you must have done it in a past life, but that's not Christian thinking. While sin can and does have consequences, Jesus is saying that God doesn't inflict blindness or cancer or diabetes on people because their parents have sinned. That's not the way God works. He says, verse 3, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, what's Jesus saying here? He's saying that sin, with a capital S, has been in the world since Genesis chapter 3. It's been in the world since Adam and Eve were in the garden. And that the whole world, all of creation, has fallen into sin. That's the condition of the world. And God is working through him, Jesus, to overcome sin and death in the world. Verse 4, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, what does Jesus mean by I am the light of the world? First, I think he means he is the light of truth. The light of truth. In John 14, Jesus is talking about returning to the Father, leaving the disciples. And we read this interaction. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So truth is light and light reveals. That is, light allows us to see. It shows the way. And Jesus is the truth that shows the way to God. Secondly, Light also reveals in order to purify. In 1 John chapter 1, John himself writes, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And thirdly, there's one more thing here I think that we can miss. Because we're not steeped in Jewish history, we're not steeped in the Old Testament, and anyone in that culture would have recognized this, I think, right away. I think there are echoes of the creation story itself in this story. 
Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And in the story we're reading now, there's this little strange detail in verse 6. After saying this, he spit in the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. This says, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. John reminds us this means sent. John's just telling us here that Jesus is the one sent from God. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. What's unfolding here, and what the Pharisees would have seen, because they were students of the Scriptures, they knew the, the, the book of Genesis backward and forward, they would have seen that Jesus here is reenacting the creation story of Genesis. Let there be light. I am the light of the world. And then the creation of Adam from the dust of the earth. That is, Jesus uses the dust of the ground to make mud and puts it on the man's eyes to recreate his eyes. So when Jesus says here, I am the light of the world, it's clear to them that he's saying that he is the truth that reveals God that he himself has the authority to bring light in the darkness, that he is the creator and the recreator of all things, and that he's come into the world as light and will one day recreate all things and drive out all darkness, all sin, and all death. So the healing of this man blind from birth, the healing of physical blindness, is a miracle, but that's a sign. It's a sign pointing to who Jesus is. The second part of the story we see, I'm just calling spiritual sight. Spiritual sight. Like many couples, uh, Lorene and I have routines that are part of our daily life. One of our routines we practice every morning uh, like clockwork. Uh, I tend to get up first and I go downstairs, I make the coffee, and then I go into my, uh, my office area in the back of our home for my quiet time to begin my day, to begin study and so forth. She comes down a bit later. Uh, she comes into my office to say good morning. Then she goes and gets her coffee and goes to the front of the house to her spot, which is on the couch right next to our front window, which faces east uh, uh, toward the east part of the sky. Now, uh, she's usually, which means she's usually sitting there having her quiet time during the sunrise every morning. And if there's a particularly beautiful sunrise, she will either call out to me or she'll come and get me and say, hey, come see. Come see the sunrise today. So she'll offer her personal testimony of the sunrise, and her testimony will lead me to go see what she is seeing. And the testimony of spiritual sight in this story begins when onlookers, when people see a change in the man born blind. Now, I'm going to go through this next bit, which is a long narrative passage, almost verse by verse. So follow along with me. You can watch the screens as I read. Beginning in verse 8. His neighbors, the blind man's neighbors, and those who had formerly seen him begging ask, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claim that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. Now, how could there be this confusion? I was asking myself. How could they not recognize the man? Well, maybe after the healing of his eyes, he looked different. 
Now, I'm not an expert on blindness, but sometimes a blind person's eyes are coated and cloudy, and they're a little bit difficult to look at. Or sometimes their eyes are, are completely shut. So maybe his eyes are clear, and nobody had seen them before. His eyes are open, and they've never seen him with eyes open before. Therefore, he seemed like a different guy. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Then comes the obvious question, verse 10. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and then I could see. He just recounts exactly what happened. What Jesus did, what Jesus told him to do, and what he did. Verse 12, where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. Notice here, he doesn't answer what he doesn't know. He just says, I don't know. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Now this is critical for us to see here. We can read right by this, but it's significant because there are a number of times in John's gospel, in fact, across all the gospels, I think there are seven events that Jesus does, seven healing events he does specifically on the Sabbath. And he does so intentionally because in doing so, he's making a statement about himself, which is not the point of today's story, but he's saying, I made the Sabbath. I am greater than the Sabbath. I am the Sabbath rest of God. The religious leaders now repeat the how question, verse 15. Therefore, the Pharisees also ask him how he had received his sight. He put mud in my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. He just gives the same exact answer as before. And now the Pharisees begin to argue with each other. Verse 16, now some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Pause. Let's take a side trip. They are referring to the fourth of the Ten Commandments God gave to the people through Moses in Exodus chapter 20. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day of the Sabbath to the Lord your God, on it you shall not do any work. Now the Sabbath, properly understood, was designed by God as a gift from himself to his people for the purpose of rest and restoration in his presence. But over time, a whole set of rules had been added. Dozens and dozens of rules have been added to the commandment to try to define what it meant to do no work. So ultimately, it was a tradition born that made the Sabbath not restful and restorative, but a burden for the people trying to observe it. But others ask, how can a sinner before such signs. So they were divided. And we're going to come back to this argument in just a minute. Now they turn back to the man who was healed. Verse 17, Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. Now at this phrase, everybody's ears would perk up in that culture because of the prophecies that had been written about the Messiah and the healing of the blind. I mentioned that earlier. So when this man says, he must be the prophet. They're all thinking, what's he saying? Is he saying this is the Messiah? The religious leaders can't accept this, so they go after the man's parents. Verse 18, they still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they ask? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it he can now see? 
We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Now, a couple of things going on here. The man's parents have got to be overjoyed. They've got to be overjoyed. Their son was born blind. He had no hope. And now he can see they have to be celebrating with everything in them. But they stop short of giving credit to Jesus because they're fearful in some way. We're going to cover that in just a minute. Secondly, why would they say he is of age? That's curious to me. Why would he say they say that? Well, at that time in that culture, a boy became a man at age 13. Uh, now, we don't know for sure, so it's possible that this is a younger man. I always thought of the story that he's an old blind man. He's a younger man, young enough that maybe the religious authorities aren't sure whether his testimony is valid or not. They aren't sure if he's of age, so they go to the parents. And they say, yeah, he's of age. He's over 13. Ask him. Verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And that was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Now, what would it mean to be put out of the synagogue? Why were they so afraid? In that culture at that time, that was just about the worst thing that could happen to a family or a person. To be to be. Uh, rejected or cast out of the synagogue meant basically to be, to be cast out of your community, to be cast out of your circle of friends, to be cast out of social life, to your business would be harmed. You could not be in public anymore. You were an outcast. That's why they were so afraid. Verse 24, a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. So now they turn up the pressure. They've decided that Jesus is a sinner because he doesn't observe their man-made rules about the Sabbath. So they're pressuring this man to discredit Jesus, to change his story, so that what is so obviously true cannot be true. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. Now, I call this the emotional center of this story. What we need to see here, I think, is the simplicity and power of this man's testimony. He says, I don't know much, and I can't explain exactly how the mud thing works, but I do know this. I was blind, and now I see. When Lorene comes into my office in the morning, and says, come see the beautiful sunrise. Uh, she doesn't try to explain the atmospheric conditions that cause the sky to be painted in red and purple and orange at 6 a.m. in the morning. She doesn't try to explain how clouds work, how the moisture works. She just says, come and see what I see. I hope this is encouraging to you, to all of us. Because when we give testimony about Jesus... We don't have to explain the nature of the Trinity. We don't have to answer every thorny theological question. We don't have to explain where the dinosaurs are in the book of Genesis. We don't have to explain why there is suffering in the world. What we have to give witness to is what we know, what we've experienced. I was lost, 
and now I'm found. I was lonely, and now I'm loved. I was guilty, and now I'm forgiven. I was hopeless, now I'm hopeful. I was anxious, and now I'm at peace. I was blind, and now I see. And that leads us to the third point I see in the story, spiritual blindness. What is spiritual blindness? Last summer, you might remember I made a trip to Africa with a ministry called the Timothy Initiative. We spent, uh, the group that I was with spent four days in the West African country of Togo, uh, observing a church planting initiative there. And Timothy Initiative, and I'll talk more about it at some point later this year, is planting hundreds and hundreds and thousands of churches all over Africa, the Middle East, and Asia uh, in, a, in, a, in a, um, a viral sort of movement kind of way of disciple making. We were just observing that, and we, one day we took a little side trip into the neighboring country of Benin. And we visited a city called Ouida, uh, which, is, which includes or is a place where is located the oldest voodoo temple in that part of the world. It's called the Temple of Pythons. Okay? I did not know any of this before I visited there. Some 400 years ago or so, Benin was the center of the slave trade in that part of Africa. And part of the legacy of that dark time is the veneration of and worship of snakes. He's giving us a lecture on how that practice developed. The African people learned at some point that the Europeans and the Middle Easterners who were buying and selling them were fearful of large snakes. And so they would use snakes and hold them and wrap them around their necks to keep the, the Europeans and the Middle Easterners from capturing them and selling them into slavery. And eventually this became the worship and veneration of the snakes themselves. And you can see, go to the next slide, you can see uh, we walked into a place and they have these snakes in a place and they keep them there and they bring them out and they worship them there. It's, it's a temple the snakes. The missionaries there consider this to be one of the darkest places on earth, spiritually speaking. Verse 24, a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? This is where it gets fun. He answered, I've told you already and you did not listen. <coughs> Excuse me. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And you need to see that's intended as an insult. That's intended as a slur against the birth story of Jesus. We don't know who even who his father is, they're saying. Verse 30, the man answered, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this I replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So what is spiritual blindness? Three things. First, spiritual blindness is the inability or unwillingness to see ourselves and our own sin. 
The word sin or sinner appears six times in this story. And the question is, what is sin and who has the authority to define what sin is? The Pharisees define sin as the violation of their religious traditions. Jesus defines sin as the violation of the holiness of God. Spiritual blindness begins by refusing to acknowledge one's own sin, and by claiming the authority to define sin for oneself. Secondly, spiritual blindness is also the inability or refusal to see others. Jesus heals a man born blind. No one has ever seen that happen before. But in their spiritual blindness, the Pharisees cannot see either the man or the work God is doing in his life. They see nothing of that. They only see their hatred of the one who was sent from God to do the work. Thirdly, spiritual blindness is a a refusal to see Jesus himself. The heart of their rejection is that Jesus refuses to conform to their religious rules, to their expectations, to their ideas about God. He refuses to be who they want him to be, and so they don't see So now we come to the end of the story. Let me just read the the last few verses to you, beginning in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, the the blind man. Now who who can see? So he goes after him. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what? Are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. I told you that each story, as we go along this pathway, we see the confrontation. We see Jesus makes a statement. He does a work, a sign. There's a response. And the responses grow increasingly hostile as we move toward the cross. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He demonstrates his authority and identity by healing the man born blind. And we see two responses. The first is that the one who was blind now sees. The second is the ones who claim to see are now blind. So the question we ask, I think, is where are we in the story? Where are we in this beautiful narrative story? We're either like the Pharisees or the woman in my dad's church so long ago who in their religious pride refuse to see their own sin, refuse to see see themselves, refuse to see others, refuse to see Jesus and what he's doing and who he is, or were the man born blind? Without hope in the world, utterly dependent on the one who will touch our eyes. We are the one who Jesus sees the one who trusts him, who washes in the pool, and who then sees Jesus. 
and then offers his testimony to the world in God's word for 2,000 years. I don't know a lot, but I know this. I was blind, and now I see. I see the one who sees me. I see the one who heals me. I see the one who pursued me when I was cast out. I see Jesus, and I worship him, the light of the world. Will you bow with me as I pray? Lord, so much we thank you for your word, for this beautiful story of, of healing. But more than that, it's a story that points to both who we are and who you are. So we ask you to restore sight to our own sometimes blind eyes, that we may see ourselves, our need for you, that we may see others and their need for you, and that we may see our, you, and that seeing we may believe, and that believing we may have life in your name. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.
receive now today's benediction. May we go now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Amen. Have a great day.